This is Unsung History, the podcast where we tell the stories of people and events in American history that haven't gotten much notice. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then interview someone who knows a lot more than I do. Today's story is about Black teachers in Ellery, South Carolina, in the immediate aftermath of the Brown v. Board decision. From 1951 to 1954, five cases from Delaware, Kansas, Washington, D.C., South Carolina, and Virginia, all dealing with school segregation or inequality, were appealed to the United States Supreme Court when none of the cases was successful in the lower courts. The Supreme Court combined these cases into a single case, which became Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Thurgood Marshall, the head of the Legal Defense and Education Fund of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Persons, NAACP, served as chief attorney for the plaintiffs. LDF became totally independent from the NAACP a few years later in 1957. On May 17, 1954, the Supreme Court decided unanimously in Brown v. Board of Education that the racial segregation of children in public schools was unconstitutional. The decision, authored by Chief Justice Earl Warren, stated, We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Therefore, we hold that the plaintiffs and others similarly situated, for whom the actions have been brought, are, by reason of the segregation complained of, deprived of the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. What the decision did not say was what the solution to this deprivation should be. Instead, the court asked the parties to reappear before the court the following term to hold arguments. The follow-up decision, known as Brown II, issued in 1955, didn't give much in the way of specifics, saying only that, quote, school authorities have the primary responsibility for elucidating, assessing, and solving these problems, unquote and that it was up to the local courts to determine that the desegregation was happening with all deliberate speed. The vagueness of the decision allowed white supremacists in the South to drag out the implementation of desegregation and to create legal obstacles. In some cases, these legal battles lasted decades. Even when desegregation happened within a few years of the ruling, the first black students attending newly integrated schools often faced harassment by other students and townspeople, and in some cases had to be protected by the National Guard, as in the case of the Little Rock Nine in 1957, or federal marshals, as in the case of Ruby Bridges in New Orleans in 1960. Unlike students, black teachers had no protections or guarantees under the Brown ruling. As southern states tried to destroy the NAACP using legislatures and courts, they started to target teachers with the belief that, as Candace Cunningham writes, 
At the heart of all of these new efforts was a belief that Black teachers and the NAACP were indivisible. Segregationists understood that to dispense with Black teachers was to weaken the NAACP. To dispose of Black teachers was to destabilize the civil rights movement. In March of 1956, the South Carolina General Assembly passed a series of anti-NAACP statutes, including the Anti-NAACP Oath, which made it illegal for local, county, or state government employees to be NAACP members. In May of 1956, in the town of Ellery, South Carolina, the school superintendent asked Ellery Training School Principal Charles Davis to distribute a questionnaire to teachers who were applying for the 1956-1957 school year. The questionnaire, for the first time, asked questions like, Do you belong to the NAACP? Do you feel that you would be happy in an integrated school system, knowing that parents and students do not favor this system? Do you feel that an integrated school system would better fit the colored race for their life's work? Do you think that you are qualified to teach an integrated class in a satisfactory manner? Do you feel that parents of your school know that no public schools will be operated if they are integrated? Do you believe in the aims of the NAACP? When 21 black teachers at ETS refused to distance themselves from the NAACP, the white school officials would not rehire them the following year. Ellery stood out for the nature of the questions that were asked, but black teachers all over the state lost their jobs for supporting desegregation and refusing to renounce the NAACP. It wasn't just South Carolina. All over the South, white school officials dismissed, demoted, or forced the resignation of black teachers who had previously taught at black-only schools. The Ellery teachers, with NAACP lawyers, took their case to court in Bryan v. Austin in September 1956. The judges in the U.S. District Court issued a non-ruling, stating that the teachers should first exhaust administrative options. Instead, in February 1957, the NAACP filed an appeal with the Supreme Court. Rather than wait to lose the case, the South Carolina legislature repealed the anti-AACP oath statute. It was an important case for civil rights, but South Carolina followed up with legislation requiring teachers to disclose all of their organizational affiliations, which in the midst of the Red Scare seemed legally defensible. To help learn more about what happened with these Black teachers, I'm joined now by Candace Cunningham, Assistant Professor of History at Florida Atlantic University, and the author of the article, Hell is Popping Here in South Carolina, Orangeburg County Black Teachers and Their Community in the Immediate Post-Brown Era, from the February 2021 issue of History of Education Quarterly, which is the source of much of the information in this introduction. Hi, Candace. Thanks for joining me today. Having me. 
So I am so interested in this subject. I, I think I mentioned when I initially reached out to you that it wasn't until I was listening to Annette Gordon-Reed's On Juneteenth that it occurred to me at all that I didn't know what had happened to Black teachers uh, after desegregation. Uh, and so your journal article is just uh, was so compelling to, to start thinking through these issues. So I wondered if you could start by just telling me a little bit about how you got into this topic, started doing this kind of research. Yeah, so I was going through the South Carolina uh, NAACP papers, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and I think I may have actually been doing research for a professor, but um, I was looking at the South Carolina NACPs. Um, they, you know, have an annual conference, and they would have their pamphlet every year for the conference, and. In the intro, they would have their own history. And there were a couple of cases they kept mentioning about teachers. Mm. And so one thing that became really clear to me, year after year after year, they mentioned these two cases. One was in Charleston, South Carolina, and it was a Black teacher hiring campaign during World War I. So Charleston, like other Southern cities, uh, did not hire Black teachers in their city schools. So that meant that schools were segregated and that therefore you had white teachers teaching Black children in segregated schools. And so this created all sorts of problems um, and became kind of the first large issue that the uh, NAACP, South Carolina NAACP took on. Um, and then um, they had mentioned this other case about uh, teacher salary equalization. And these cases were taking place across the U.S. really. But of course, Black teachers were paid oftentimes less than half of what white teachers were paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those salary equalization cases were really important in terms of actually laying the groundwork for Brown v. Board because salary equalization uh, was a way to think about equalization more broadly in terms of, of education, public school education. Um, so I kind of started with those cases and then um, realized as I started digging that there were a number of case studies uh, really across the whole 20th century in, in South Carolina involving uh, Black school teachers And so I ended up looking at this case in Ellery, South Carolina, which, you know, no one's ever heard of Ellery. (laughs) It's just, it's that big, you know, it's teeny tiny. And, um, you know, you can, you can miss it if you're driving in South Carolina, two exits and and you missed it, right? But when I started looking at this case, it it was interesting because uh, I realized that actually a lot of historians of education had talked about it. They talked about it in their work, but it was normally a, a sentence or two. But when I started researching the case, I realized, oh, this was something that actually made national headlines in the Black media. Um, and so I kind of, you know, fell into a, a, a rabbit hole and uh, ended up being able to kind of take a deep dive into this particular case study. And of course, that led me to start thinking about well, what happened, as you said, what happened to Black teachers after Brown v. Board. I think what I've never really realized, you know, I think hearing stories about desegregation sort of understood there was a Supreme Court case. And of course, I knew there was opposition in the South and, you know, it it didn't all happen smoothly. But I I hadn't realized this piece about uh, the black teachers being either let go or fired or demoted. Do you think that there is a a reason that we don't hear about that side of things as much. I mean, it's it's out there, of course. There are, there are scholars who have talked about it and stuff, but it's not in movies that you watch about desegregation, that sort of thing. You know, why why is this piece not as uh, as front and center as some of the other things around civil rights? 
Well, one of the things you'll notice um, people in the time period saying, you know, the challenge was part of the challenge was proving that this was happening, mm. right? Because um, one of the reasons the Ellery case was so different was because it was so explicitly unconstitutional. But typically speaking, teachers uh, sign one-year contracts. And so typically speaking, they technically weren't being fired. They simply weren't being rehired. Uh, And so how do you prove this is happening more so to Black teachers? How do you prove that they are being uh, dismissed at the expense of, you know, Black students? And of course, one of the things that was also happening was that Black schools were closing during desegregation. Um, and students were being uh, integrated into uh, uh, majority white schools. So they weren't being hired into these other school districts or these other schools. So it was sort of this really complicated problem, actually. It was challenging to prove. It was obvious to everyone. Um, on the other hand, proving it was, was a difficulty. Um, and so, you know, think about how challenging it would be if you couldn't prove it then. <laughs> so now, in hindsight, to be able to look at these same sources and try to prove that this was happening. So I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, but, you know, the other part is we do like to have kind of that teleological view of history and mm-hmm. of things consistently improving. Um, and when we take a closer look at what happens to Black teachers and Black administrators, and quite frankly, Black school children, uh, we all of a sudden start realizing that that Brown v. Board uh, wasn't quite as the, the turning point that people had hoped that it would be. Uh, but one thing that is interesting, particularly about Black school teachers, is they forewarned this would happen, right? They said at the beginning, school desegregation is going to lead to um, the loss of Black school teachers. So so they saw that happening. Um, they had some examples from a few cases, uh, particularly in the Northeast and Midwest. And so they, so they knew that there was this tendency um, to let go of, of Black teachers. And, you know, the other thing is when we talk about desegregation, earlier school equalization, earlier Black um, teacher salary equalization, and we talk about continued issues today. One of the biggest issues, right, is that, of course, schools weren't ever equalized. Of course, salaries weren't ever equalized because public school education has never been adequately funded. Right. So black children and black school teachers had always been kind of the easy uh, way to 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 underfund education. Right. That that was the group that bared the grunt of the problems. And then what we see happening with after Brown v. Board is that then things started getting a little bit more complicated. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, some of the sources that you use, but what were some of the other kinds of sources that you were looking at? You know, you just said it's hard to prove then, you know, and it's hard to show now. So what what are those sources? What what kinds of things were you looking at? I mean, certainly my most valuable source was the NAACP NAACP papers, um, both the papers for the state and um, also for the national organization. Um, also, the NAC's magazine, The Crisis, um, was an invaluable source for me. Black newspapers, extremely important. Also, Black uh, academic journals. So things like the Journal of Negro Education. You know, a lot of educators and sociologists uh, were writing then about these kind of contemporary issues. 
Um, and from there, you know, just kind of a plethora of, of uh, manuscript sources and oral histories. Some I did myself, some I did not. And, you know, one of the things about this kind of history is, you know, compared to other members of Black community, teachers are comparatively uh, more documented. Right. They had their own organizations. So the Black Teachers Organization was a really important source material for me. And they were more likely to have written something to be published, you know, to sort of be part of a Black intellectual community. But still, uh, when you're studying any kind of oppressed group, you're, you're going to have a bit more of a challenge right, to find uh, adequate source material. Uh, so there was just a lot of footwork involved, you know. I remember mentioning someone earlier, my sources, you know, my, stu- my studies on South Carolina, my sources were in South Carolina, Georgia, Washington, D.C., Tennessee, right? Um, I probably could have found more in more places if I continued to devote <laughs> the time and energy. So there, so the, the, you know, the source material is actually really um, quite broad. So let's talk about these uh, 21 teachers in Ellery. So they are asked, and this is 1956, I think, mm-hmm. uh, they're asked to fill out this a really long questionnaire, a really intrusive questionnaire uh, to be rehired for the next school year. And unlike in some other places, 21 of them just say, no, <laughs> I'm not willing to to do this, to say this. Uh, and, you know, it, it happens in a few different ways. What would that have meant for these teachers in, as you mentioned, this very small town uh, to do that, to take that stand? Uh, what does it mean for them as individuals? What does it mean for the community that they're in? You know, I, one of the things I think is interesting is, is it's, I think, emblematic of what I learned about the civil rights movement, which is that there are all these moments that people don't anticipate, you know, no one went to work that day saying, I'm going to be a civil rights activist that has a case that makes it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, you know, that was not what they anticipated. Um, and instead, it was really, I think, for many of them, very simple. Right? Um, this was a violation of their constitutional rights. Um, no one had the right to ask them about um, organizations that they associated with, right? They had freedom of association. Um, no one had the right to ask them if they were members of the NACP. And most of the teachers actually weren't. That's one of the things that's interesting. Most of them were not members of the NACP, but, but they felt that this was a violation of their rights. And so, you know, I don't know that in the moment everyone fully anticipated how meaningful this was going to be, that it was going to turn into this kind of drawn out civil rights case. They did have a, a discuss, individual discussions with their school principal, a man named Charles Davis. Uh, and Principal Davis actually was very much an activist and continued to be an activist after um, he was dismissed from the Ellery Training School. And he kind of, you know, had this individual conversations with them saying, you know, are you sure this is something that you want to do? Uh, and, and some teachers decided that they didn't want to. Right? There were a few who kind of filled out the application and answered the questions to the satisfaction of the school administrators, um, or I should say school district administrators, and kept their jobs. Uh, but these 21 teachers, the majority of the, the faculty at Ellery Training School, did not. And so um, I think it was probably after the fact <laughs> that they kind of realized, oh, wow, this is a really, this is actually really a big deal. 
Yeah. Yeah. Did, did it have an effect on their careers? Like they obviously weren't rehired there. You know, do we know anything about what some of them went on to do or not do after taking this stand? Yeah. Um, so for, for, for most of them, not signing this meant being blacklisted in South Carolina in terms of teaching. And so one's ability to leave had a direct connection to their ability to find um, similar work. So we know that, that the NACP, um, as, long as, as, long, as well as some other organizations, like um, I think the Civil Liberties Union, helped some of these teachers go to graduate school, helped some of them get their teaching license actually in New York. Um, I mentioned earlier Charles Davis. He ended up in North Carolina. Another teacher that I interviewed, she was married and her husband was in the, um, I believe he was in the, in the Air Force or the Navy. Um, so she left. And so she was able to continue teaching. She actually came back to South Carolina later and taught there again, kind of after things had sort of blown over. So some people never fully recover, you know, never financially or, or sort of career-wise fully recovered from this. This, this was a detrimental blow. Um, and really uh, negatively impacted their life trajectory. Um, another teacher I interviewed, um, she's actually the namesake for the case, Ola Bryan. Um, she was married. Um, she and her husband um, ended up opening a store. <laughs> and so she kind of um, ended up, you know, going into business in that way. So so people ended up in different things. But for, for some teachers, um, it was clear that they were not able to recover from this in terms of their career or um, their financial situation. Of course, teachers were not necessarily paid well anyway. Um, you know, so you're you're talking about someone who's really only a, a few steps above um, poverty line um, now being deprived of their livelihood. Um, and they didn't have as many options, especially as the majority were um, African-American women, college educated black women, of course, went in teaching and nursing. Um, and those, and that's, those were mostly their only options. Um, so not being able to teach anymore was a huge blow. So I, I want to talk about South Carolina as a, a site in civil rights history. Uh, and you talk in your piece about the importance of South Carolina. And, you know, one of the things that struck me right reading it was the importance of the, I believe it was the Palmetto Education Association, mm -hmm. the PEA, which is an organization for black teachers, uh, which is, you know, clearly hugely instrumental in helping them, uh, and is their connection to the NAACP. And then one of the perhaps unintended consequences of Brown v. Board, uh, unintended by the Supreme Court, although clearly not unintended by South Carolina, <laughs> is that the PEA has to merge with the South Carolina Education Association, which is all white, uh, and that then black teachers just lose their voice in the mm -hmm. state. So I, can you talk some about South Carolina and the tensions that are going on there and the way that they were really preparing to deal with Brown v. Board and, and not truly desegregate? Yeah, I've, I've often referred to South Carolina segregationists as intellectuals. You know, there are certainly these moments of um, racial violence. Um, there are certainly these moments where things kind of come to a head, you know, and, 
And it's really clear that, yes, this is the South. <laughs> um, on the other hand, you know, there aren't as many moments other than I would say the desegregation of Clemson University. Um, there are not these kind of media frenzy moments um, that we see happening in places like Mississippi and Alabama. Right? There's no one standing on the steps and saying segregation today, segregation now, segregation forever. Um, that doesn't really happen in South Carolina. South Carolina segregation has accomplished the same thing. Um, they do it in a different manner. And they're consistently more, uh, I mean, I would say early 20th century all the way into the 1970s. They're consistently more engaged with preventing desegregation than they are with reacting to it, right? So they're not as reactionary as, as some leaders in, in some other states. So in terms of school desegregation, South Carolina sort of South Carolina's segregation has had a bit of an advantage because the chronological first of those cases um, was a, a case in Clarendon County called Briggs v. Elliott. Uh, Briggs v. Elliott actually started out as Pearson, the school district. Yeah. And in the Pearson case was actually about um, getting black students a school bus. And that case was unsuccessful. So the NACP then turned it into a school equalization case, which was Briggs v. Elliott. And uh, that case went to the federal district court. And actually the judge there said, uh, Judge Jay Wacey's Waring, who, by the way, <laughs> got run out of the state um, for kind of being a proponent of desegregation. <laughs> uh, Judge Waring kind of said, you know, what, what are you actually arguing here? Are you arguing for equalization or desegregation. And by this point, uh, Thurgood Marshall is leading the NACP's legal branch. And so they drop the case and they come back as a um, desegregation case. And so all of the, the majority of those arguments that we hear made in Brown v. Board were actually first made in Charleston, South Carolina in the federal district court there, stemming from this case in a rural area of South Carolina, Clarendon County. So what all of that means is that South Carolina segregationists who were paying attention, and they were, knew what was coming down the pike. By this point, it was clear that if this case made it to the Supreme Court, there were only two possible options. One was the Supreme Court saying, you must abide by equalization. Or uh, the second, and this by this case, the more likely scenario was, uh, you must desegregate schools. So knowing that that was going to happen, South Carolina's segregationists, led by L. Marion Gresset, who was a state senator, um, started equalizing schools. Now, the degree to which these schools were being equalized is certainly up for question. But <laughs> African-Americans did say at the time that, that a number of their schools were clearly improved. Mm -hmm. um, so, th so there were actual changes. And in fact, um, the, the Ellery Training School, right, where those those 21 teachers were effectively dismissed from their jobs. That was an equalization school. That was one of the schools that was created in order to, uh, for South Carolina's segregation to be able to say, hey, we're abiding by separate but equal. See, our schools are equal. So they started on this equalization campaign, the school equalization campaign. Uh, and they were pretty much, you know, they were uh, going down this path by the time Brown v. Board um, is handed down. And they, and they use this as a way to continue to deflect, right? To continue to avoid 
mandating school desegregation in South Carolina. So uh, one of the reasons that I think South Carolina is, is important in terms of our understanding of the national civil rights movement um, is it's kind of a reminder that things play out differently in different areas. Um, but at the same time, we'll, we still see sort of the same end result, right? Which was that segregation was maintained for a significantly longer time uh, than, than when Brown v. Board was handed down. So I noted that when Brown v. Board came down, that South Carolina initially said, it doesn't apply to us. Is that, <laughs> is that why? Because they were saying, oh, we're, we're equal. Right. Yeah, we're equalized in schools. We're, we're abiding by Plessy v. Ferguson, finally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, seem to be the irony that they that they avoided. And if they, in fact, they kind of uh, when Thurgood Marshall was making this case, uh, Briggs v. Elliott in the in the federal district court, they kind of took the wind out of his sails because he and the NACP had prepared all this evidence that schools were not equal. And South Carolina's attorney, uh, I think it was S. Emory Rogers. Uh, they come in and they say, yes, we acknowledge that schools are unequal, but we have a plan. We're going to start equalizing schools. And so, you know, a lot of his case was sort of just immediately taken away from him. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is one journal article, but it's part of a larger project that you're working on, right, about teachers in the civil rights movement. Can you talk some about what that larger project looks like? Yeah, so um, I'm looking at a number of case studies in South Carolina um, that are specifically concerned with how teachers are engaging in the civil rights movement through lawsuits. And so it's through the NAACP. But as you mentioned earlier, there's also this really clear relationship with the Palmetto Education Association. So the PEA uh, was created earlier, of course, than the, than the NACP arrived in South Carolina. The NACP arrived in South Carolina in the World War I era um, and created these chapters in Charleston and in Columbia, and then kind of moved further into different parts of the state after that. So I look at a number of case studies uh, involving Black teachers, civil rights activism. Um, and so I begin in Charleston, South Carolina, with that case I mentioned earlier, the Black Teacher Hiring Campaign. Um, and then I moved to the teacher salary equalization cases. And then I moved to Briggs v. Elliott, um, that first, chronologically first school desegregation case. And from there, I moved to the Ellery case. And my last case study involves a woman named Gloria Rackley, um, who was dismissed from her job in 1963 after a, a series of uh, civil rights engagements that she that she'd been involved in, um, and and one thing that's consistent with all of these cases is everyone who participates in these uh, lawsuits get fired from their jobs. I don't have any exceptions to the rule. I have one person who was able to still find a job in the state in another area, and that's uh, Septima Clark. <laughs> um, but pretty much everyone gets fired from their jobs and are not able to. Uh, to continue working in South Carolina as, a, as school teachers or, or principals. So, you know, I'm interested in um, challenging several notions. You know, one is kind of an older, but at this point, I think mostly dismantled um, idea that teachers were not activists, right? you know, instead trying to talk about them as not only being engaged in the civil rights movement, but really being at the forefront of it. 
um, and being an important part of its success. And then the other thing uh, is, you know, what do teachers who need to organize do when they're not able to organize a labor union? You know, it's very difficult to organize labor unions in South Carolina. Uh, so what they do is they really work through their uh, teachers association, like the Palmetto Education Association, and they create this really clear partnership with the NAACP. And that mostly happens with those 1940s teacher salary equalization campaigns. And out of that, we get this clear partnership between those two organizations, and we get this new group of civil rights leaders who are going to be at the forefront of the 1950s movement, um, which, of course, is really what enables the movement in the 1960s. So that's kind of my larger case study. And then I end with talking about what happens to Black teachers after desegregation. I think this is something that more that more scholars are thinking about. Um, and what I really focus on is what happens to the Black Teachers Association. Um, they are forced to merge with the South Carolina Education Association, um, which had been the majority white or the all-white teachers association. And what we see happening with that merger is also what happens with school desegregation, which is that um, the leaders of the PEA lose their leadership positions when this merger happens. And they no longer have an organization that uh, really understands their grievances. Um, for instance, the PEA always had a legal fund. Uh, much of that legal fund would go to the NAACP. But there was this really clear understanding, right, with the Black Teachers Association that these teachers were facing issues specifically connected to their race. Uh, and that was lost when they joined the All-White Teachers Association. Um, and, and the work of merging these two organizations largely fell on the PEA. They're the ones who came up with the plan, who kind of figured out the timetable and, and how it was going to happen. And so, you know, it's sort of interesting the ways and so it sort of replicates what we saw happening uh, more broadly. Yeah, she's... So uh, it's impossible to look at this and not think of the current moment uh, with this rise in legislation against teaching critical race theory, which, of course, we all know isn't really being taught in elementary schools in the first place. But, you know, what do you do you see some through lines here? So the uh, this case in Ellery is taking place, you know, around the time of the Red Scare. And so they move from asking about specifically about NAACP membership to more, you know, all of the organizations that you're involved in, which, you know, seems legit during the uh, <laughs> this time when everyone's asking about organizations, you know, and, and now this current moment uh, is, is obviously there's a, a new rise of white supremacy and, you know, a, sort of a backlash to everything that happened in, in summer of 2020 after the George Floyd murder. So, you know, what, are there connections that you see here in the, the kinds of ways that teachers are being challenged and the kinds of things that they're being taught, the kinds of teachers who can be teaching? You know, what, what does that look like uh, for you? I think if we um, think about it in terms of race and teaching, the connections become much more fluid and clear. Because one of the questions I sort of asked Myself, as I was embarking on this research, was, you know, why 
are these legislators and these leaders targeting Black teachers? I mean, they're targeting them from the beginning. I mean, they're targeting them from Reconstruction onward. Um, it's clear and they're passing laws directly connected to Black teachers. And so what is it about Black teachers that pose such a threat? And so, you know, a couple of things that became really clear is that um, the act of teaching Black children, right, the, in particular the act of proving that this group of people who had always been regarded as inferior, right, as intellectually inferior, the act of teaching them was political, right? It was disproving um, the very foundation on which uh, Southern racial mores uh, were established. And so teachers, Black teachers were really seen as a threat, right? And they also embodied um, the, the, the evidence against all of those, those notions, right? They were college educated. Um, if we think about early 20th century, we're talking about college educated African-Americans at a time when most white Southerners were not. Um, we're talking about people who embodied a middle-class status, who oftentimes embodied these notions of respectability. You know, we all kind of know about respectability politics now. And so they were embodying all of these things that were uh, direct evidence against the idea of white superiority. Um, so I think if we think about it from there, we kind of see this connection to today and this idea of critical race theory. Right, so this is less about who is teaching it, I think, than what is being taught or what is allegedly being taught. Yeah. Um, and, and so this, this idea that someone might be teaching about race in the classroom, I think, is seen as threatening um, and a challenge to um, even modern day ideas about, uh, about what is and isn't acceptable um, in, in the classroom or for that matter, outside of the classroom. Right? So, so I think we still seeing the, the continuation is that we still see teaching consistently being politicized, mm -hmm. which of course is so fascinating since no one really goes into teaching thinking, Oh my God, I can't wait for my work to be politicized. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think of themselves as a politician going into the classroom, but that's what we see happening. I think what it's a reminder of, ironically, of how important public school education is. You know, um, for me, I am a daughter, granddaughter, niece and grandniece of public school teachers and principals. And so, you know, I have this very firm belief in, in the power of public education. Um, and I think what this is all kind of a reminder of is everyone knew then and everyone knows now that actually, yes, education can be transformative, right? Why was it so threatening? Uh, why were these Black teachers seen as so threatening to the social order? Because they were part of creating a new social order, right? Of, of actually creating this new group of, of African-Americans who were going to be able to be middle class or elites, and so I think what we see is that education is, is going to consistently be politicized um, uh, because it is something that has a power to be uh, transformative. Um, and for some people, that may not be seen as a good thing. Yeah. And, it, you know, in your piece, you make this connection that uh, 
by politicizing teaching, they make the teachers into activists. Mm-hmm. You know, is that, I, I, I think it's uh, inevitable that that happens again now, yeah. that even teachers who don't want to think of themselves as political activists have to become that to defend the, the teaching, the education that they want to do. Yeah, I mean, even even think about, you know, the earlier Red for Ed movement. Um, these were teachers who were saying, I mean, I can't do my job. I don't have resources I need to do my job. And if they'd been given their resources, they would not have felt that they needed to go on strike or they needed to march or that they needed to, you know, kind of get their communities active, activated. And so, yeah, I think it's very likely that we'll see the same thing, um, especially if teachers really start feeling that their freedom of speech is being violated, right? That's something that people really value. And um, so I, I think it's sort of inevitable. Um, and so, so it's kind of ironic, right? <laughs> ironic that there's this fear, oh my God, these people are, are, are going to be are social activists and they're, and they're not necessarily um, but yeah, when you sort of push people into a corner and quite frankly, if you put people in a situation where they might feel like they don't have anything to lose, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's a very history t- tells us <laughs> that a very likely possibility is that they will become activists. You know, one of the things I think even when we look more broadly at the civil rights movement is the very actions that are often intended to uh, undermine activism, right? These laws that were passed, particularly in the 1950s, to undermine the NAACP actually increased NAACP membership. (laughs) So the exact opposite happened because people felt they were under attack. And so, you know, it does have the the power to kind of activate and politicize people in a way that, that they didn't necessarily anticipate or even want. Candace, thank you so much uh, for talking with me. This is just absolutely fascinating uh, topic. And I will link in the show notes uh, to your article. It's extremely readable. People should should take a look at it. I learned so much and I'm uh, so open access, though. Yes. Excellent. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, thank you, Candace. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. NSW.